And if you would, if you have a Bible with you this evening, turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Asher has been leading us on Sunday mornings through the book of Acts, and I will be back uh, after one more Sunday, uh, back from a writing sabbatical. If you're fairly new around here, you might not know that uh, the elders of the church very graciously every year give me a month in the summer uh, to sort of disappear and write something, and so I've been working on uh, a little project this month and um, looking forward to, to getting back. I'm always thankful for uh, the time to write um, and making that part of my job. It's a real privilege. And I'm also really thankful at the end of those sabbaticals uh, that I don't want to keep writing. I want to get back to preaching. I love this job and not, uh, not that one. So tonight I want to focus on just one verse. Uh, it's a power-packed verse about Jesus' building program, you might call it. Look at chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. That's Jesus' building program. This is one of several summary statements that Luke puts in the book of Acts. In fact, what I want to do, I said we just have one verse for tonight. I kind of lied. We have lots of verses for tonight. This is our main one. But if you would, back up with me and let's look at some of these other summary statements that we find in the book of Acts. Go back to chapter 2. There are five or six of these. Some are a little bit longer. Some are a little shorter. But they're all really important. It's, it's as if Luke, in the storytelling narrative, occasionally takes a look back. Imagine a, a, a walk, a hike, and then you stop and you just look back at where you've come from and what, where you are now. Maybe you look around, you, you, you take a sit down, you sort of maybe take your pulse. <laughs> how am I doing? Well, here's how the church is doing in Acts 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's one of Luke's summary statements. Look at chapter 4 now for another one. The hike has gone on a little longer. Luke pauses here take a look, to take a look back, to, to put his fingers on the pulse of the church and to assess how things are going. In verse 32, he says... Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of his things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. 
And then Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now chapter 5. Verse 12, we'll just read verse 12. It could could go on a little bit more from there. But in verse 12, we see, notice the word now, a lot of these begin with that. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Chapter 6, verse 7, now they get shorter. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now chapter 8, verse 4. Here, we're really short here in chapter 8. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. It's an update. Now, it begins with now. 8.25, look at that. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And then ours for tonight. Chapter 9, verse 31, in some ways the richest of them all, though not the longest, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. Isn't that good? Isn't that rich? Now you can compare these summary statements in Luke's account and notice some similarities. They all talk about the spread of the gospel and then they give the state of the church. The spread of the gospel and a comment about the state of the church. But there's some contrast between some of them as well. You might have noticed, maybe you didn't, but but most of the summaries we read focused on what is observable, what's somewhat tangible, maybe even tasks that the church was doing, especially would be Acts 2.42, what they devoted themselves to, doctrine and prayer and fellowship and breaking of bread. What's unique about Acts 9.31 is that it seems to be something like an x-ray. It's an x-ray of what's going on in the church. It does talk about some tasks But it also gives some explanations for why and what's happening on more than just a surface or observable level. So let's study this one rich verse here. Chapter 9, verse 31. Very cleverly, I've broken the verse into seven parts, and that's our outline. My first point is, so the church. So the church. You see, it's not very clever at all, but... I think this is one way of meditating through Scripture, if I can just pause and say that. This is one way of meditating on Scripture, just to take chunks, little little phrases at a time, and try to think through what it's saying and what it means, especially in its context. So the church, Jesus' building program is for the church, not just for conversion, but for the church or for churches, we should say. Now remember back in chapter 2, verse 42, thousands believed and then they devoted themselves to each other and to the Lord and to the Word and to the Lord's Supper and to caring for each other. It was, it was one big body, but it was one body. It was one city church. You see, as the story goes on, people get saved, but they don't just get saved and then that's it. They are 
joined to each other. They're joined to the church. They are together in one accord. Yes, they met in house to house, but also as a massive group in Solomon's portico, we're told, we're told a, a giant porch area at, at the wing of the temple where the whole church, 3,000, 5,000, whatever, they could have fit, they could have heard the word taught. They gathered together. What did Saul do after his conversion, if you've been with us in recent weeks uh, through Acts chapter 9? you remember? Yes, at first he just went and did nothing because he was blind. Yes, he ate some food and, and uh, you know, Barnabas showed up and that sort of thing. But, but look down. Look at chapter 9, verse 26 here. This is Saul. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples but they were all afraid of him. But then chapter 9, verse 28, so eventually this gets settled. Barnabas, you know, sort of backs him. And then so Saul went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. So he would, he would do sort of preaching excurses. He would, he would go out on a trip and then preach, and he'd come back. Jerusalem, in a way, became a home church for him, at least for a time. He joined them. He identified with them. Whenever later on in the story, Paul or Saul goes looking for uh, other Christians, he'll pull up to a city, you know, get off the ship, and he goes and looks for Christians. He identifies with other Christians. So the church. Now, chapter 9, verse 31 is a little curious because the church, notice that's singular, is scattered throughout all Jerusalem and Galilee and Samaria. Now, in Acts 2.42, the church is, it's big. It, yes, has small components of house-to-house -house meetings, but the church, singular, is the Jerusalem church. It's one church. It's a local church is what we would call it. But here, 9.31, the church all through Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. So this is going to be one of two things. This can either be the Jerusalem church that has scattered because of persecution. Remember that? It's back in chapter 8. We'll look at it again tonight. The church is scattered because of persecution. It is one church that has gone off in all kinds of directions. That's one possible explanation for the church singular here in verse 31. Or another is that it could be a rare reference to the church as Christians who identify with other local churches. I think it's actually the latter of those two that's most right. That's significant. There's a category that Luke has in mind, well, that Jesus has in mind for the church being represented at, on, a, on, a, on a broader level. Most often, though, the church singular just simply refers to a local body, not a group of Christians that identify with different local congregations. In fact, to my knowledge, all other references to the church in Acts refer to local congregations. So it's significant that 931 is rare, but it's also significant that it's there. I didn't plan that. It just worked out that way. 
There's something special, I think, here in chapter 9, verse 31, signaling that there's a way to take the pulse on the church, the broader church of a region. We might talk about the church in America, or how's the church in Albuquerque doing? Now, on the one hand, that's exceptionally rare. That kind of language is exceptionally rare in the New Testament. Be careful. Don't talk about that too much. Local churches instead would be a much better way to talk about the church. However, there is chapter 9, verse 31, and so there is a time to say, how's the church in Albuquerque doing? Take a pulse. That's what Paul does here. So, or not Paul, Luke. So the church. Secondly, it's the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. Recall at the beginning of this book, Acts 1.8, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, the city, Judea, its province, all Samaria, the province above it, and to the ends of the earth. And so here, that's how far it's gotten by chapter 9. It's gotten through all Judea and now Galilee and Samaria. We've seen the gospel spread just as Jesus said it would. He didn't say, will you please be my witnesses? Question mark, question mark, question mark. He says, you will be my witnesses in these places. And he gets them there, even at times, through the spread of the gospel as they spread themselves out because persecution is so great. We saw before that the spread of the gospel numerically, 3,000 in one day, 5,000 some other time. And we've seen the, the gospel start to spread geographically as we've worked our way through this book. Remember chapter 8, verse 1, because of Saul's persecution of the church, they, they all scattered. And, and then we read of how uh, Philip went down to Samaria, and then Philip was directed to an Ethiopian, and then that Ethiopian got saved, and he took the gospel down to Ethiopia. It's starting to spread geographically. It's also st starting to spread uh, ethnically. Samaritans, Ethiopians, they're getting saved. It's also spreading surprisingly. We got one little comment about priests getting saved just after there's a, a bunch of priests who are just rabid against the church and, and dead set on its demise. Of course, in the recent weeks, we've been seeing the unexpected conversion of Saul. Its chief, the church's chief opponent becomes its best spokesman. We've also seen some pretty unclean people who are in the kingdom. They're part of the church. They're ceremonially unclean. The eunuch falls into that category. The lame guy at the beginning of chapter 9 falls into that category. Uh, there's uh, Peter's visit in the dead girl's house. That, that's, a, that's an unclean atmosphere, an unclean place. There's a dead body in the bedroom up there. And then at the end of chapter 9, Peter is staying with a tanner, a guy who works with dead animals and blood and skins all the time. And Peter hangs out in his house for several days. The gospel is spreading in surprisingly amazing ways. What was the result? Well, thirdly, the church had peace. The church had peace. Now, I, I thumbed through some commentaries today, and most scholars, it seems, take this peace to be physical peace, 
cultural peace, political peace. They, they say that the threats and the, the fleeing from the threats that happened in chapter 8 and in the beginning of chapter 9 has apparently ceased because now there's peace. The church is finally enjoying a moment of peace and tranquility. Well, I don't mean to be a stubborn student, but I, I don't see that in the passage. Uh, it, I don't see it explicitly anyway. In fact, in the immediate context, just two verses before, look down at verse 29 and 30 of chapter 9. It seems to suggest just the opposite. He spoke, that is, uh, it sp Saul spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And so they had to get Paul out of town real, real fast. That's a paraphrase of verse 30. So this peace, I think, that's happening in verse 31 is what we call inner peace. It's what Philippians says is the peace that passes all understanding. I think this inner peace is supposed to be juxtaposed to the, the, the external non-peace that's happening right alongside of it. You've got this new convert Saul who was dead set on killing Christians, now says he's one of them and wants to preach the gospel of them. And they're going, I don't know, really? Oh, okay. And so now he's in and out. He's in the church. You've you got to wonder, is this just some trick? Uh, his preaching is stirring up greater opposition. People are trying to kill him. You're trying to get him out of town as fast as possible. But the church had peace. The church had peace. Do you see? Do you feel the, the tension there? They had peace, even though they had no reason humanly speaking, to have peace. We sometimes sing, when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Peace. Peace is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's one-eighth, one-ninth of the gifts, or the fruit of the Holy Spirit, according to the Apostle Paul. Paul says that the essence of the gospel is peace. It's a message of peace that brings peace. He can say in 2 Thessalonians 3, may the Lord of peace give you peace at all times in every way. That's remarkable. The Lord of peace will give you peace at all times in every way. Well, he could say something so radical because of what Jesus promised back in John 14 in the upper room. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives it do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The church was at peace with God. They were reconciled to their God through Jesus Christ. And they were pursuing peace with each other. Samaritans and Jews, you name it, clean and unclean, or so they once thought, are now together. Fourthly, the church was being built up. It was being built up. Remember that Jesus said he would build his church. You can think of that in two different ways, really. And I think, it's, I think he meant both. You can think of it in terms of Jesus building his church by adding to it and also by strengthening it, securing it. This is how building is used in Ephesians 4. It's, it's strengthening, it's, it's growing, it's maturing. Paul in Ephesians 4 says that 
God has given leaders in the church to equip the rest of the church for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we get to the unity of the faith, until we get to the knowledge of the Son of God, until we get to mature manhood, until we get to the fullness of Christ. He's going to keep building us up. The church is supposed to be built up. It is being built up. There's promise and responsibility here. You can think of each of those independently. There's this promise. Jesus said he would build his church. That's what we've been seeing in the book of Acts. He's clearly building his church. Recall that Acts is the story of what Jesus continued to do after the gospel accounts. Remember, Luke begins Acts by saying, now, in my former account, what you call Luke, uh, is what Jesus began to do. In other words... This is what he's going to continue to do. It's what he's still doing. We saw last week in chapter 9, verse 34, Peter says to a lame man there, Christ heals you. Not I heal you in the power of God. Christ heals you. He's at work. We've seen the relentless progress of the gospel. Jesus is building his church. That's a promise. But there's also responsibility. The church not only must grow in numbers, but it also must be strengthened in its midst, in its, in its, in its group, in its, in its body, we call it. And so I ask you, how are you being built up in this church? Are you connected to a local church where you're supposed to be built up? Are you? Are you availing yourself to bodybuilding opportunities? Not with going to the gym with Drew. Uh, he's always looking for someone new to, to, to scoop in and, and disciple. But it, that's, that's not exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, there are bodybuilding opportunities within each church. And each Christian must avail him or herself to those opportunities. And if you're not, you realize that you're cheating your brothers and sisters from you being the best you. I know that sounds Joel Olstein-ish. But you know what I mean. You being the, the best saint, the best Christian, the best body part in the body you can be. Are you building others up? The church is supposed to be built up. This church, these churches, these Christians, despite great trouble, difficulty, they've lost homes, they've left family. They've been threatened. They've seen amazing things. They are being built up. Fifthly, they are walking in the fear of the Lord. They're walking in the fear of the Lord. Does that surprise you? Is that what you thought was next? The church had peace, was being built up, positive, positive. And walking in the fear of the Lord, some of us think negative. Well, Jerry Bridges wrote a book with a title some years ago called The Joy of Fearing God. The joy of it. You misunderstand fear in the biblical sense if you don't think the fear of the Lord is a beautiful and awesome thing. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, according to Proverbs. I love Sinclair Ferguson's definition of fearing God. I'll never tire of quoting it. I probably quoted this more than anything else in all my preaching. He says, fear of God is that indefinable mixture of reverence, fear, 
pleasure, joy, and awe which fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what he's done for us. That's so good. It's so right. Remember how Psalm 130 says, Oh Lord, if, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? We'd be in trouble. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. If you understand how great your sin is and understand how it was forgiven, how can you not fear? 1 Peter 1 tells us to conduct ourselves in fear, knowing that we weren't ransomed with gold or silver. We were ransomed with the precious blood of the innocent lamb, the Christ Jesus. Our hymns teach us this oftentimes. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. Both are true. There's a wrong kind of fear of God that grace eradicates. And there is a right kind of fear in the grace of God where we put our hands on our mouths and we stand in awe and we are glad to be right there in that moment. They were walking in this fear, walking in it. That means it's constant or as close to constant as is possible. It means that this is communion. Walking in the fear of the Lord means walking in relationship of awe and respect and obedience and, and conversation and worship, and it's ongoing. It's like walking. You just keep doing it. You just keep doing it and keep doing it. And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Sixthly, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells Christians. God indwells Christians. How could they not be comforted no matter what else is going on around them. I know we don't fear, feel comforted always. There's that promise in 2 Corinthians 1 that God gives us enough, enough comfort in our trials that we actually have some comfort left over to comfort others who are also going through trials. It always feels like we have a shortage of comfort, but God's word tells us don't trust your feelings. He's given you more than enough comfort for you to comfort others. There's always a, an overflow. So you can reach out and you can comfort someone even while you're uh, in suffering because you can trust there's a reservoir of comfort there. It's because of the Holy Spirit. He's, he's called by Jesus the paraclete. That's a Greek word. And, and I don't always mention Greek words or really not that often, I don't think. But it's a good word to know only because the translations, let's say in John 14, give us different words for the Holy Spirit there. They translate this word paraclete differently, and not any one of them totally captures the whole. So paraclete is sometimes said to be the helper in English, or comforter in English, or advocate, like a, a trial lawyer who defends us. And he's all those. He's all those. So listen to John 14 with that in mind, where Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, advocate, comforter, paraclete, 
and he will be with you forever. He abides with you and will be in you. Later on in John 14, the helper, the advocate, the comforter, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. He will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. What did Paul write of the Holy Spirit? He says, hope that we have, it doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he's given to us. He's given us a spirit that cries, Abba, Father. It's as if the Holy Spirit testifies that we're sons and daughters of the King by, dare I say, whispering, communicating with us there's an Abba-Father relationship here. It's sweet. On any one of these, we could dwell even longer. If any one of these topics here in Acts 9.31 grabs your attention, I'd encourage you to just do a Bible search and look for, let's say, the Holy Spirit. Remind yourself of all that the Holy Spirit does, or peace, or comfort. Look at what God's Word says. Seventhly here, it's that they multiplied. The church multiplied. And how did they multiply? Well, in part, is through what came before. I mean, you have at the beginning, it's almost like a multiplication sandwich, if I can say so. All right, it's Judea and Galilee and Samaria. That's the beginning of verse 31. At the end, they multiplied. It's still going, it's going, it's going. And what's in the middle? Well, they had peace. They were being built up. They were walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And so, they multiplied. This was promised. You'll be my witnesses. And all over the world, the, the church will be built, and churches will keep being built. And it's what the saints purpose to do. They must purpose to not just go out of town and hide, but speak. Saul gets saved, and you'd think maybe he would say, oh, who am I? to represent this Christ. I better just keep my head down, soak in some benefits, make sure I don't cause any trouble for the church. I'm not going to be a good representation of the church. I used to oppose it and kill people for it. But no, he couldn't help it. We can't help but speak the things which we've heard and seen. The gospel spreads numerically and ethnically and geographically and surprisingly We've already seen those. We can add to that list. The gospel spreads deeply and transformingly and intimately with God. The gospel spreads unifyingly. It puts us together. What we're doing, Acts 9.31, not as individuals, but it's a, a corporate project and a corporate reality. These are corporate goals. This is the church. This is Jesus' building program. And what we have here in Acts 9.31 requires something and assumes something that's so, so important and can't be missed. That's what we call the gospel. It's not there. You can't find it. But, but it assumes it. Acts has made it clear already that the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus must be believed 
for the forgiveness of sins. It must be believed for the forgiveness of sins. Do you believe it? Your sins forgiven. This is why Jesus came. This is what the church is for. The church is not some sort of institution of self-help. It's not some sort of institution of just finding higher purpose. It's relating to God despite our sin because Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. He was raised on the third day and offers forgiveness to all who will simply abandon trusting in self and completely trust in him. We call it belief. We call it faith. Call it whatever you will. Cling to Jesus. That's the necessary first step in Jesus' building program. And from there on out, there's peace. There's building up. There's comfort and fear of the Lord. And there's this great mission to multiply and multiply and multiply. It's what the Lord's Supper portrays, right? We saw the Lord's Supper hinted at, I think, in Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the doctrine of the apostles, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. Not just any old breaking of bread. I think that's commemorative breaking of bread. That's, that's, that's the symbolic breaking of bread that Jesus taught his disciples to do. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And it's why we're here tonight, to remember his death until he comes, to remember why we needed his death, to remember what his death did and accomplished for us, to remember all the promises that are ours in him, all the gifts of grace, all the things that cannot change. We're here tonight to remember again that we're still sinners. We still need grace. If he didn't save us, we wouldn't be saved. If he didn't forgive us of yesterday's sin, we'd still be in trouble. We'd be doomed, in fact, in today's sin and in tomorrow's sin. His mercies are new every day, and great is his faithfulness because Christ was faithful for us. On our behalf, he was righteous for the unrighteous. He died the, the death of the guilty, not because he was guilty, but because God is just that loving. So tonight we partake of a symbol of broken body and spilled blood, and we do it in faith, and we do it in remembrance.